they say no more, no more they say no more. Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So this is my second episode diving into the Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Um, and specifically, uh, we'll look at the middle part of the first volume, the first novel, I should say, of the Baroque Cycle uh, titled Quicksilver. This was the name of the first volume of the, of the series. And this uh, volume, or this uh, first book, uh, really explores... Uh, what the one character that's going to be with us through the entire series, and that's uh, Daniel Waterhouse. Uh, we saw how he was living in Massachusetts late in his life, but was called back by the alchemist, uh, who was a bit of a supernatural character, Enoch Root, uh, to kind of fix the calculus dispute, to uh, find a, a consilience between the Germanic, the continental, and the and the British mathematicians on this. Uh, right before the Hanoverian secession. Um, so, and then we got a lot about uh, Daniel's youth, uh, his, young, his young, young years at Trinity, his introduction to Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton uh, was a fairly major character in the first hundred pages or so of this book, and he sort of drops off and becomes much more of a background character that just sort of intersects with Daniel's life at various times. Um, I th in fact, I think in the whole rest of the first book, Quicksilver, we only meet Isaac Newton uh, twice more, maybe three times. And it's always just passing through Daniel's life. Um, really where we pick up here is 1666, 1665, and 1666. Um, so this is, of course, a very... 1666 is a big year in English history. You have the, the plague outbreak and you have the Great Fire of London. And especially the London fire is going to be really key in the plot, as we see the savants, the, the natural philosophers, the people of the Royal Society become involved in the rebuilding of, of London. So there's going to be a lot of construction work um, in the rest of the book. Um, and that's, that's uh, you see that happening as it's, it's going on. You see buildings being rebuilt and homesteads being fixed and all that. So this, this, there's a little bit of fun with, with that. Um, what else happens in this section? Um, well, let me just say this, this whole period, this middle hundred pages or so of Quicksilver focuses mostly on Daniel becoming a natural philosopher, becoming a savant. He's not going to really stay, uh, like a full-time natural philosopher. He's going to end the book as a kind of a leading dissenter with a mistress, kind of a public figure, um, being kind of backed up by a, a rich family, not being supported by the Royal Society. Basically, politics gets in the way of his life as a, as a full-time natural philosopher of the type of like Hook or even a Newton. And because he comes from a Puritan family and is a believer in religious uh, tolerance and freedom of conscience, um, and he's associated in some ways with his father, Drake, who is a leading Puritan, he's presented here as actually kind of someone who inspired Cromwell, even though he's a fictional character. You know, he's inspired, he's described as one of the Puritans behind Cromwell. Um, and he's, you know, so Daniel kind of has that taint on him. And that kind of keeps him from being fully, really sustainable in the Royal Society. But anyways, he's still pretty young. <coughs> 
at this point in the story in 1666 he's like late late teens i guess at this at this point and we saw how he went to his father and asked his father for permission to go to epsom to uh at the i think he was he was uh he was welcomed by john wilkins a real figure who becomes very important in the the later parts of the first volume of of this series uh he gets invited to basically be a an apprentice of sort of the Royal Society, which is an Epsom, which is kind of an exile due to the plague. So the section I want to start with is called Epsom, 1665 to 1666. Um, and really the epigraph we get here is uh, from Hobbes's Leviathan, and it's really about the philosophical language, which is going to be a big part of the goal that Wilkins is going to put, um, Wilkins and Hook, but I think it's Wilkins mostly, puts Waterhouse on this track to develop a philosophical language. And we see he's still working on this in a way in in the bat in the forward flashes. I guess this whole novel is a back back flash, a flashback. But in, you know, in Massachusetts he's working on the the logic mill, which is rooted on the concept of philosophical language that ultimately we know that's going to be binary language, right? Neil Stevenson's a computer guy. A lot of his work, especially his more recent works, deal with computers. Uh, Cryptonomicon deals with early computers and things like that. So it's actually Cryptonomicon is a, is a good book to read alongside this one because it also has fictional and historical figures. It, there's some continuity between these, um, these, these themes. But if, if I have time, if I feel like it, I might do that later. Um, but anyways, that's something that runs through Daniel's life. Um, and it's going to allow him to intersect with Leibniz, as we'll see in the next episode. Leibniz becomes a major character, much more influential than Newton in a way for Daniel's growth. He, he meets Isaac when he's quite young and Newton's already kind of outpaced him. But Leibniz also, you know, on one hand, deals with Daniel much more like an equal um, and also is able to relate to him philosophically in, in ways that Daniel finds convincing. Um, but... You know, with with Newton, it's more of like a fair weather friend kind of relationship. Um, some loyalty to Newton, but uh, he's not essential to his life. So it's a bit of a trick at the beginning of the book where we, we think we're going to get Newton to be the major character of it. And actually Leibniz is much more the major character. And you get a sense that Stevenson affiliates much more with Leibniz because Leibniz did much more have this idea of of a, a mechanical universe free will within it but <clears throat> still kind of a determined universe uh, we'll get into philosophical issues as best i can as we go into this series so anyways the characters in this very long chapter by the way um ups in 1665 to 66 uh, chapters aren't numbered in this book but whatever um it's, it's about 35 pages so it's a huge section and we meet people like well, of course daniel's there we meet hook uh, Hooks, of course, a famous philosopher of the, of the scientific revolution. He's, I guess, most known for working with uh, telescopes, but he did other things as well. Uh, we get our first close look at Wilkins, another real figure of the scientific revolution and uh, crucial for Daniel's development. We also meet like the Duke of York, which is kind of a fun little aside, the, the brother of the king, the future king of England. Um, and others, a whole bunch of other people. But it's basically our first good look at the Royal Society characters who are going to populate much of the early part of this, this series. <clears throat> so you come in and it's it's kind of an over-the-top scene that Daniel 
sees when he's in Epson is like everyone's doing experiments, experiments everywhere. It's like none of these people want to waste a moment that they're given because of the lockdown, right? Now, we've just gone through these lockdowns because uh, of COVID, and many of us feel we've kind of wasted our time and not done enough. But these philosophers, they certainly are not wasting their time. They have their independence, their isolation, and they have the time to just focus. They don't have to worry about politics. They don't have to worry about all these other things. So they're really hard at work on different experiments. And we see a lot of these experiments. I'm not going to list all of them, but they do things with bees. They, they do gravity experiments. One of my favorite parts of this section is when Daniel, and I think it's Hook, are working on a, an effort to, because like the, the theory of gravity as it's being developed at this time, it's obviously based on the, the, the inverse square law, right? So the idea is if we dig down a dig enough hole, things should weigh differently 300 feet below the surface. They should weigh heavier, I guess, than at the top. But you can't have the scale down there because then the things you're weighing it against would also weigh more. So it, it, from the perspective of the scale, from the instrument, it would seem to be no change. So they have to develop it where half of the scale is on the surface and half the scale is down this well. I think they don't dig a hole, but they, they, they have, they go down a well and they kind of try to measure and they don't find a, a difference, but they realize maybe it's doesn't prove anything because we don't have accurate enough measurements. If we had like a time scale or something like that, we could really figure out the truth, but it doesn't disprove it. It just doesn't con convincingly prove it. Now, the other thing they do a lot of, and it's pretty horrifying stuff if you have a weak stomach, is vivisections of animals. Um, in fact, we see it almost right away. He's vivisecting, someone's vivisecting a frog, basically crucifying a frog on a plank to cut him open. Um, a lot of live experiments on live dogs, right? And, you know, I'm an animal rights person. I, I do think I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I think we should be experimenting on animals much less than we do. And, and these experiments are certainly to, to pique people who who share my sentiment, I think. And I think that's by intention. I, I think Neil Stevenson is making a point about the sacrifice that were required for science. Maybe the, the commitment of the scientists to it, their willingness to bypass apparent morality. And we see some of these people get disgusted with it. I think Hook and Daniel are both later on it's suggested they don't want anything to do with these experiments anymore. But Neil Stevenson isn't like morally black and white about it he also shows they learn things um, by doing this some of these experiments involve like cutting open dogs and trying to remove a spleen and then you see a letter to the royal society where someone says like my wife needs this splenectomy maybe you know how to do it now um or how the circulatory system works right? that's one thing they were trying to experiment with and they also do things with you know the, the candle and the frog or the candle and the mouse in the closed environment and which does the mouse die first or does the candle go out, right? Once you realize that something is going on with, they didn't, I think they didn't have oxygen identified yet, but they knew there was something in the air that kept the mouse alive and kept the fire going. So, or they kept the candle going. So which would go out first? And it turned out the, the mouse died before the candle went out. So a lot of these experiments obviously are, are pretty horrific, you know, from a moral perspective of, of animals having an equal say to, to or having certain rights, maybe not equal say, but certain having some rights not to be experimented on. But they are, they're experimented on. Uh, and you just gotta, maybe if that bothers you, you skip this part of the book. It's only really in this section, um, but it's, it's there. Um, now, 
what Daniel ends up getting put on um, by Wilkins is the philosophical language. And have a discussion like, you know, we need a language of philosophy. And, and Daniel's like, well, it's Latin. And then Wilkins says, well, it can't be because Latin sounds good, but it's pretty been corrupted by the church. It's It's got a lot of convoluted phrases, which make it useful for the church. We need a language, a philosophical language, which is incapable of making uh, false statements. In. So if you're speaking in the philosophical language, it, it would be purely logical and you know, things wouldn't be redundant. That's one thing. So at one point, Wilkins has him just list redundant terms like fornicating whore um, or what are some others? Idle truant. You know, get rid of these kinds of things. Simplify the language. It's kind of like Newspeak in a way. Uh, is I have a hard time not thinking that Stevenson was imagining, you know, a bit of, of what Newspeak was trying to do. But Newspeak was like a political language, right? This is a philosophical language. So this is trying to, while Newspeak is trying to obfuscate truth and hide it, philosophical language's goal is to be purely objective and everything and, and be, it's incapable to say a statement that's wrong. That's the idea here. Um, and so, yeah, it's, so that's what he gets going on. And he has to do things like just list, like, at one point he's listing all the punishments he can think of right or all the insults you can think and just make long list of words and we know from the massachusetts bay institute of technological arts that waterhouse later found he's still kind of working on this he's still making lists and categorizing things because that becomes the real rub yeah we can make lists of all the terms we can simplify it we can remove unnecessary words and redundancies and language we can maybe even come to a grammar but you know, how do you categorize knowledge, right? If you're ever going to have a logic mill or computer, right, you're going to have to have a way to categorizing things efficiently. And so that's partially what they're doing. Um, now, we're told early on that, you know, there's a lot of politics involved here too, religious and, and royal, um, because they are being sponsored by Charles II. So sometimes they get calls. So I think the expert, they get a call or a letter from the king saying, I've noticed that ants are smaller than ant eggs. Figure out why. And then they have to go and do their experiments, study ants, until they can come up with an answer for it. Um, religious politics fit in with, uh, with Wilkins trying to, uh, he's, he's working on, he's working on the ark, the, ark, the Noah's ark. And he's trying to explain how all how Noah could have got all the animals in the ark. This is the old thought experiment that people do to pick on religion, right? It's ridiculous, but well, you know that. What about the food for the carnivores? What about all the shit? What about water, fresh water, and all that? And Wilkins is trying to explain this away and and coming up with a plan. He has to like change the definition of cupid though to make it work, which is is kind of a nice little pirouette he does. Make it basically make the arc bigger, but that's an example of how they have to kind of conform to what the majority of the of the society, which is religious and, and Anglican, you know, believe in. Um, so uh, what else do we get? We get Hook's experiments talked about. In fact, we have uh, you know images that Hook drew in real life. Re well, at least one reprinted in the book of the flea. You maybe have seen that one. Um, and Hook's realization that man-made things under the microscope look ugly, and ugly things made by nature under the microscope look beautiful. 
And if you've ever seen Hook's drawings, uh, it's, it's hard not to to uh, believe that. Now, at the same time, they're also getting correspondences. And so this is, we. I think we are introduced to Oldenburg in this section of the story as well. Oldenburg and Hook, of course, have a falling out, uh, both in, in the text of the story and in real life. They had this falling out. Um, Oldenburg was like the secretary for the Royal Society. And he was also well, like, kind of a bit of a diplomat, so he had a lot of foreign correspondence. And he wrote to a lot of like foreigners, diplomats, and savants. And he often shared findings, right? So Hook accuses him of basically stealing his patent of, of a watch or something and giving it away. And I, I th you know, I'm kind of on the Oldenburg side of this debate, as great as Hook is, that yeah, in science is only relevant if it's shared and universal and free to everyone. But it's a basically Oldenburg is being accused of being a, a like an internet pirate, and and, and Hook's defending his copyright. Um, and I think he, this is introduced here as, as well. And we get some on the correspondence between the, the natural philosophers in Epson and natural philosophers in other parts of, of Europe. Um, we get a little bit more on the Comstocks too. John Comstock is, becomes like a big sponsor of the Royal Society during this time. Now, John Comstock, he's, now Stevenson's going to invent this thing called the Cabal. It sounds like it's really from history, but it, but the characters he fills it with are all fictional. Um, basically, the people that run the the court, basically the the major figures in the court. John Comstock is one of them, and he's basically an armorer. He makes his money. He's part of this. Now, remember, we met uh, Roger Comstock before. He's kind of Daniel's age, and they were friends in in Trinity College or something, um, and. Roger Comstock's from like the lesser line, the Golden Comstock line, the, the, I guess the less politically entangled line. And he ends up being involved like in real estate and the slave trade and becomes really rich. He's eventually going to become like essentially Daniel's sponsor. But the more prominent line, the Silver Comstock line, is headed by this guy, John Comstock, John Comstock, the Earl of Epson. Um, so you got to learn all the double names of these characters as you read this book. It's not that hard once you learn it. And sometimes their names change, like Roger Comstock becomes Marquis of, of Ravenscar. He'll be, you know, so sometimes he'll be talked about as the Marquis of Ravenscar. And you got to remember that's Roger. Uh, well, John Comstock, the Earl of Epson, um, is like he's like the high chancellor, um, essentially, in the, in the court. And he, he's an early sponsor of the Royal Society. He's uh, a strict royalist, and he's a he's like an Anglican. He's a he's a supporter of that. And a lot of the politics in the second half of Quicksilver involves the rivalry between John Comstock and and Anglesey, who's also in the Cabal, and they're more pro-Catholic, um, but both one an established church, right? So Waterhouse is always going to be on that side of these kind of debates. Um, but at this point in his life, he's just a nobody. He's just an apprentice. So he's under the radar of sorts. But we got John Comstock mentioned here as well. And there's also going to be a tension between John Comstock and Wilkins um, over, over established religion. So throwing a lot at you. But uh, it, once you read it, it, I think it's all it's not that hard to keep track of all this stuff. And it's all a lot of fun to follow these different characters and their different titles and their... They're different, uh, the rise and fall of their fates in politics.
Now, we also meet the Duke of York. Um, the Duke of York uh, was the, eventually James II. Um, and he's he comes to well, Daniel, who's a very young man in the royal society, a nobody. And he says, like, I brought something or, you know, a friend of mine brought something nasty back from France, which is code for I have syphilis. And he basically is saying, if you know anything about this, you know, let me know. And I don't think anything really comes of it in this part of the book. Maybe when we get into James II's reign, some of this might come up again. I think I remember some stuff about syphilis and, you know, there's that whole drama about the legitimacy of his children and all that. Because um, Charles II didn't have any kid, legitimate kids. And then uh, James II had some issues with legitimacy as well. Um, which, of course, was used to justify the Glorious Revolution in part. Eventually, they, eventually the middle class of Britain just fire James II, right, for being a, a crypto-Catholic or whatever, too close to the French. Another level of politics here uh, that run throughout this book. But anyways, we see, again, another example of how the royals and the people in political power are using the Royal Society for their own interest. So... Uh, yeah. So what do we look at experiments? Uh, vivisection. Um, what else? Oh, the executed criminals, dissecting the bodies of executed criminals, something we know that really happened in, in England at the time. Universal gravitation being discussed. That's a, that's a big one in this section as well. A whole bunch on gravity. Oh, the, the snowflake thing too. Hook about the snowflakes like yeah each snowflake's unique but each arm of the snowflake is identical so does that mean there's a organizing principle in the or in the center of the of the snowflake and its origins and what puts it there right these are good philosophical questions they're they're things that scientists would ask and i guess we know the answers to it i really don't i guess that's something to do with how crystals are formed but um they didn't know, and they have these questions. And this is going to feed into the Leibniz discussions that Daniel will have later on as well. Now, he sums up this section um, with, They came here supposedly as refugees from the Black Death, but really they were fleeing their own ignorance. They hungered for understanding, and they were like starving wretches who had broken into a lord's house and gone on an orgy of gluttonous feasting wolfing down new meals before they could digest or even chew the old ones it had lasted for the better part of a year and now the sun rose over the aftermath but the artificial breath experiment they were scattered around blinking stupidly in the devastated kitchen with the dog ribs strewn all over the floor and huge jars of preserved spleens and gallbladders specimens of exotic parasites nailed to planks or glued to panes of glass vile poisonous bubbling over on the fire and suddenly they felt completely disgusted with themselves end quote a little bit of moral reflection on the vivisection experiments at the end of this chapter but it's also about this desire this deep desire for for knowledge now this chapter ends with uh uh daniel getting a letter from newton saying come to me daniel or newton's also hiding out and this is when he's doing his prism prism and light experiments um and he basically says, come see me. I need your help with something. So that ends the chapter. Now, again, we're flipped. After this, we're flipped back to 1713 on board the Minerva. I'm not going to say too much about these chapters because they're they're just nice little interludes. It's all involved in a pirate chase. The basically black pirates and eventually Blackbeard try to attack the Minerva. 
as is leaving Boston, and the Minerva is a, simply a much better ship, and they're able to eventually get away. Um, if there's little things that come up, I'll, I'll mention them, but, um, you know, I think it gets a little action in whatever otherwise is very much a novel, a at least a part of the series that's focused on philosophy. There's not much action. Mostly it's to people talking. So I think these interludes are, are, are a bit wise because they do add stuff. Other chapters aren't going to fall. F other books in this series aren't going to be as quite as talky and focusing on science and in quite the same degree we're going to have much more adventure in the other all pretty much all the other books with maybe the exception of the third volume but um certainly book two book three book four and five are much more just inherently filled with action so all we have the way he fits it in here is with these pirate attacks and and we're reminded of course that piracy was a was a threat to people on the british isles we're introduced to Dapa, I think, in this section a little bit more. Maybe we met him before, but he's a, a former slave. He's going to be a major character later in the book and have deep connections with Eliza, who's also anti-slavery. She was a, also, we meet her, she's a slave, um, but a, a slave of the Turks, which wasn't just a strictly race-based slave system as it would develop in in early modern Europe. A little bit, we learn more about Van Hook's brilliance as a, as a captain and all that so we get this just little side involving a pirate attack there's some humor there too with uh at one point this is a little bit later in the book but they dress up uh daniel as the captain and make him look like an idiot put the telescope you know on the wrong side and, and things like that because they're trying to fool the pirates into thinking they're less prepared than they really are all right back to the back to the back to london um this is actually in Lincolnshire. So Daniel has to go all the way to Lincolnshire, Woolsorth, Woolsorp, which is where Newton is. And our epigraph is actually from the book of Daniel. And of course, Daniel is named after that character. His, um, you know, the, the Puritans took the book of Daniel very seriously, as do, I guess, oppressed Christians generally. Um, or groups that feel persecuted anyways. But we get a quote that's about discovery. And this section is also, again, about discovery. Um, and he starts out traveling to, to see Newton. And we just get a little of the journey. Um, and he even thinks about the vivisection. I, I think even though it's pretty gruesome stuff that Stevenson includes, he makes the characters, at least the few that we have a close window into their minds, we make them, we think about vivisection. For instance, this little section, he says... Having dinner or even polite conversation with them was like sitting around a table participating in Hook's dog experiment. Everything you did or said was another squeeze in the bellows, and you could stare right in through the vacancies of the ribcage and see the organs helplessly responding, the heart twitching with its own macabre internal power of perpetual motion. Daniel suspected that the Newtons were one of those families, and he was glad Mother was absent. The coat of arms was proof of Euclidean certainty that he was right about this. So once we are introduced again to Isaac Newton, we're, we learn again that this is very much a one-sided friendship. Daniel has a certain loyalty and commitment to Newton because of its brilliance. And part of Newton's character, or Isaac's, ah, sorry, part of Daniel's character is to break free of Newton and, and really come to his own. And he becomes a Leib Leibzian, much more in his own work. Um, and that's going to be really crucial for his character development. But it's a very one-sided. He just wants Daniel there to help him with the prism experiments. 
But you know about these prism experiments, I'm sure, how he was able to divide up white light and recombine it into white light using prisms. Early discoveries of spectrometry, where he's trying to get light from Venus and try to break up that light. And of course, if it breaks up differently, right, you can kind of get a sense. If you have pure white light from the sun, you can use that light experiments to find out what it's made of you know, if it breaks up differently. So if you go to see Venus, you know, the prisms will act a little bit differently. So he, they didn't quite figure out spectrometry till later. I think it's the 18th century is more when it develops, but we see hints of it here. Um, they also talk about basically what would become Principia Mathematica, where Newton is explaining about universal gravity, right? And how any of us could be planets. Because, you know, you've probably done this in a math class or a science class. If we shoot out of a cannon, you know, we'll fall down, right? Things will fall down in a parabola. You know, gravity will take us back down. But if we have enough force, you know, eventually we'll just fall around the Earth, right? And we'll be in essentially an orbit if we had enough force to do it. Newton, as presented here, knows this stuff already. And this is, of course, going to be key to Principia Mathematica, which is theory of universal gravitation um also we get a little bit on uh fluxions he mentions here which is, of course is early calculus so uh, these developments are of course very important in the calculus dispute as well wind and newton figure out calculus newton's failure to publish is a plot in this as well compared to leibniz's overzealous publication and that's also can i tie to the to the calculus dispute all right, so this is the first half of the section I want to talk about today, all about science. Um, but we need to get into a few other themes here. Um, we're still in 1666, and we need to talk about the Anglo-Dutch Wars, which I guess isn't the most compelling part of history, but Stevenson makes them very important because I guess one way of looking at this is to the degree that these, these books are about the origin of capitalism, right? So it's got to be about the rise of the middle class in England um, and, and to a lesser degree in France and certainly in Amsterdam, right? Amsterdam being the kind of the, in many ways, ground zero for, for capitalism, at least commercial and financial capitalism and commerce. England comes a little bit later. France never quite figures it out fully. And this is going to be a theme of this book, right? And so the Anglo-Dutch Wars in the early, which there were three in the 17th century and there was one in the 18th century, really part of the... Um, I don't know much about that fourth Anglo-Dutch war. I don't think it's a very, it's not huge. It must be some offshoot of like the French war with America well, and the with America against Britain or something. Something's going on there. I, I, I don't know that. But the first three Anglo-Dutch wars are kind of wars between these early capitalist powers um, over control of the seas. And eventually what happens, of course, is they get unified. Right. In fact, in the in the third Anglo-Dutch war, it's the it's the English and the French versus the Dutch. But the result of this 1688, the Glorious Revolution is, you know, bringing in uh, the Dutch to be the to be the kings. Right. Or at least be half the king. You have William and Mary marries the Stuart line and then married to the Prince of Orange. You bring in the Dutch and the Dutch. Basically, you have then a, some kind of unity between the middle classes of these countries. And certainly this is something Stevenson writes a lot about in these books. 
getting, especially with uh, in book two, where he starts getting into banking a little bit more. Banking's a lot in here too, but it's still sort of primitive, early banking. The banking we, we see in the later volumes is much more developed, like with the Bank of England, stuff like that. Um, and we're, we're going to see by the end of the first book why it's so important, right? Now, the, the Anglo-Dutch Wars, the first was during the English Civil War, um, which was fought something over the Navigation Acts or something, right? Now, this one that's taking place while the plague and the fire of London are taking place is the second Anglo-Dutch War. And the Dutch win this war, right? And this has a big effect on on English, really finances. These wars weren't like millions of casualties. They were long drawn out affairs, but they're largely naval affairs. But the result was, you know, about commerce and about, you know, things like the slave trade. And I think Stevenson is quite good on contextualizing these wars. I think he makes them, in terms of blood and sweat, bigger like lives lost bigger than they were actually. Um, but in terms of their impact on British finance, English finance anyways, really huge, right? The third, basically the second and the third Anglo-Dutch war, both basically bankrupted Charles II. He's, he's had to be, you know, bankrupted twice. And of course that's going, as you have this rising middle class and they become more politically significant um, and you have nobility getting into commerce and getting into the stock market, you know, they, getting into banking they care about this stuff they they don't like you know when the king says i'm not paying these debts that means depositors who relied on repayment of those debts for their you know to guarantee their deposits you know they lost their money right and so they would turn part of the reason they turn on the stewards is because of this overspending on these wars and to a lesser degree france is gonna have the same problems but they don't have the same well-developed banking system and again, this is something that Stevenson cares about and writes a lot about in these books. So if you don't like this kind of stuff, if it doesn't interest you, this is, might be hard to get through at times. But it's super, super key to what the argument he's, I think, trying to make here. Um, so we got this kind of a... Uh... Now, what he was really trying to go... When he brings up the second Anglo-Dutch War, the third Anglo-Dutch War will have a bigger impact on the plot of the book, I guess. But you have this kind of apocalyptic moment. 1666. So Drake, Waterhouse's father, the Puritan who believes in the end of the world, thinks it's really coming, right? And you have you have the plague, you have a war, and then eventually you have the fire, right? So Daniel's returning into London at this point. So plot-wise, Daniel's coming back into London, and he hears London's on fire, and London's been on fire for a while. And he gets there, London is on fire, right? And we finally see the death of Drake, and Drake dies apocalyptically apocalyptically he dies you know it's, it's i think for me it's a little ambiguous it's implied later in the book that they sort of had him killed off the royals used the fires just to kill him off but he's he's exploded in a in a, in a fire yeah on gunfire and he he basically dies the way he thought the world was going to end right and it's some beautiful writing here where Waterhouse sees these last moments of his father's life and he sees him going up into heaven exploded right into, into all these different parts. Um, kind of ascending into heaven literally with the, with the fire. Now, he was also shot during this. So I, so I think this is what happened. He was he was shot kind of in the back with a blunderbuss, but it was just like, it's kind of like birdshot kind of stuff. He hurts, but he survived. And then it also let, let off the the 
the you know started the explosion that that kills Drake. So we have the end of Drake here, right? And this is of course a key for Daniel's independence. He's still a young man, but he's able to become independent uh, somewhat of his family's philosophy. Um, you know, stop believing in the end of the world. It's going to free him up to be a natural philosopher. It's going to free him up philosophically, and it's going to free him up to new influences, such as that of Leibniz. Um, and he's going to become politically kind of in different circles too. So it's it kind of has to happen uh, for Daniel's development. But anyways, Drake's gone. But he kind of hovers over the story for, for at least a while. So then we get, uh, again, another section on board the Minerva. Um, but the Fire of London is, is just, there's not much about it in the book. It's just the aftermath of the Fire of London is so key. Because we see so many of the savants of the Royal Society get involved in the rebuilding efforts. Of course, Christopher Wren uh, did a lot of the rebuilding. Hook gets, becomes an architect. Even Daniel Waterhouse becomes an architect for, um, for Roger Comstock who's trying to build a house. Um, but the section, back to the Minerva in 1713, this is the section where they basically try to make Daniel appear to be a goofy, incompetent captain, so the pirates would, would be fooled. And we'll also learn that they're, they're being chased by Edward Teach, um, who was the um, Black, Blackbeard, right? And we even get the, you know how Blackbeard used to put like firecrackers and stuff on his beard and he was really a king of drama because the goal was to make them surrender, not necessarily fight. You know, we get a little bit about that. And we get actually his background too as a privateer for the English who when the war ended still wanted to make money so he just went rogue, right? That's what happened with a lot of pirates. A lot of them started as privateers who later, you know, just they, they thought we got a good thing going here, right? I used to, like, if you were a privateer, you'd be an independent military vessel, essentially, contracted to the British government to, sh to sink or loot Spanish, Dutch, or whoever you're fighting, right? It's ships. But when the war ends, you lose the right to do that, but you still want to steal stuff. You still want to make your money doing this. You still have a crew you need to feed. You don't want to get into boring, something as boring as, like, sugar trading. So you just go up pirating, right? All right, jumping ahead. We jump ahead four years. It's, it's a big time jump. Uh, we go back to London, to Daniel Waterhouse's life. It's 1670. So we picked, ended in 1666, and we jump ahead to 1670. And, and we get a nice little introduction here, an epigraph um, from the Royal Society about coffee and tobacco. Um, and we see Daniel in pursuing these kind of pleasures more and more. In the second half, we're, we're about halfway through Quicksilver now. And then the second half of Quicksilver, we see Daniel go to the theater, drink coffee. I don't think you ever see him drink alcohol, at least not in this part. Uh, I guess we, we, in 1713, we, they went to a bar, but you don't see him drink much, but coffee, big thing. You know, we see kind of, so this is, works on several different levels. One is we got Daniel's development as a more secular character not so tied to his Puritan upbringing. He doesn't fully deny it, uh, at least not this early in his life, but he's he's able to pursue the pleasures of, of life of the ruling class or of the middle class, I should say, in, in London. You know, his family has money. They have a big residence and it's being rebuilt after it was destroyed in that fire. We, you know, he goes to the theater, eventually gets a mistress. So he's going to become more of a part of the middle class. Um, 
through that. And, and this is kind of about that. Um, so we have this chapter called Daniel at Channing Cross. And it's kind of all about him intersecting with, with the upper class and the other middle class types. It's him kind of out in society. We don't see him working, you know, in the Royal Society. He still is a Royal Society fellow. But we see him doing other things, right? Um, Isaac's giving lectures at Trinity, not publishing much as we'll see. We see the rebuilding of London taking place and with it, cleaned up neighborhoods. We see a kind of consumer economy beginning to pick up, reflected, I think, really in coffee, in the consumption of coffee, but also in the clothing. Wow, what a big jump in the first part of this book. There's some description of clothing, but it's not a big thing. But wow, like now Stevenson will go on for pages. Um, when you get into the 1670s, talking about people's clothing and dressing and their wigs and their elaborate dress. You've seen pictures from the 17th century, right? You've seen pictures of, of these guys with their huge wigs and their flowing robes and all their elaborate stuff. This is all part of a consumer revolution that's taking place. Yeah, only the rich can take part of it initially, but eventually, you know, fashions trickle down, right? And you got cheap copies. Daniel can't afford the really elaborate stuff, but he sells a wig still partakes in it he doesn't wear the rig that wig that often but you know he still partakes he's part of this consumer revolution and it's all in the background we got for instance we learned that uh john churchill is is kind of and is it john churchill um now anyways we learn about things like the voc um the dutch east india company like it's it it gives her paying on dividends of 40 percent and and the that much it matters because english men in the years after the second anglo-dutch war are investing in the dutch east india company and other firms like the guinea company right the guinea company will be a big thing and this is where roger comstock is going to make his money he's not from the really wealthy line of the comstocks but he's going to become really really wealthy just by sell, you know having shares of the guinea company and selling them at the right point right it's, it's all kind of a speculative game but it creates a lot of wealth right and of course it's all on the back of slaves and indentured servants and and other working people right Not, i mean this is the primitive accumulation narrative right it's it's because of the new world and it's because of the slave trade that this wealth was able to be accumulated <clears throat> So yes, very much this is the book about the origin of capitalism. Um, and it's not that far under the surface to see it. All right, we were introduced here to the cabal. This is fictional, of course, at least the, obviously there were people behind Charles II running the government for him, but the, the, the these characters are all fictional. So we have to go over them. So John Comstock, we already met. He's the, he's the Lord Chancellor, essentially, like the Secretary of State. And he's the, He's Lord of Epsom, Earl of Epsom, and he's the he, he's his money comes from armorers, so he makes the cannons right, and the gunpowder and stuff. Then you have Thomas More Anglesey, the Duke of Gunfleet. Um, he becomes the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, not Boltzrun. Uh he's the secretary. He, he, so he's like uh, the Secretary of State. So Comstock's more like the Prime Minister, I guess, Lord Chancellor. Uh, Sir Richard Ampthnor, a banker, um, who also gets involved in the finances of, of it. And then General Hugh Lewis, the Duke of Tweed. So these people are from different parts of life too, right? You have Anglicans, you have a more crypto-Catholic person in, in Anglesey. You have bankers, you have 
you know, people involved in the, those commercial aspects that become increasingly important to government in these years. So we're introduced to the cabal here, and these the, the dynamics between them are really going to impact Daniel significantly. Now, Daniel is in town, and he's delivering this telescope, the Newtonian telescope. So at some point, Newton gave him this telescope to deliver um, to the Royal Society. And it's the Newtonian reflective uh, telescope. So anyway, so much in this chapter is about changes since the Commonwealth in terms of the theaters and the consumer goods, but also the changes since the fire with all the rebuilding of it. Um, we learn a little bit about uh, Daniel's more extended family, the other water houses. Um, so you have some have gone to America already. They're the more Puritan parts of the family. You have uh, you have like he's got nephews, too, that are because Daniel was a bit young, uh, part of a younger part of the family. So you have some nephews who are like his age or even older. Um, now, one, you know, one of the important, I guess, is the sixth sister of Daniel's Mayflower Waterhouse. Right. And we get a really interesting aside about her womb and her difficult reproductive life. And this is, of course, common of many women at this time. And of course, Queen Anne even would have this very similar relationship with her her womb but uh she's going to marry this guy thomas ham and ham is essentially a banker he's a goldsmith right so the way this worked and we saw hints of this earlier in the book as well you know merchants don't really trust the currency so remember isaac newton and daniel are trying to buy the lenses and the merchant doesn't trust the stamped guinea right they are more likely to trust banknotes because a goldsmith, someone who makes gold and processes gold, eventually became banks and people would store their gold with the goldsmith, right? And then they would issue out loans backed by that gold. So, or, or just give you a certificate of deposit saying, oh, so-and-so has deposited, you know, one pound of gold in my vault and, you know, pay to the bearer that one pound. This is what Drake did. So it becomes early paper money, right? Now you can trust this more because you can go to a goldsmith and get like a pound of gold specifically measured out and everything for that deposit slip. Um, more trustworthy than, I guess, just the floating currency. And that's kind of what Thomas Ham does. So Thomas Ham eventually becomes a banker for the, for the crown. And this is going to be the downfall of, his, of this part of the Waterhouse family line. So we learn a little bit about them, um, but we also see him kind of entering into high society and interacting at these coffee shops, Daniel I'm talking about, uh, you know, coming across this ruling class. And here's where we get one of those first early descriptions of the clothing that go on for like long paragraphs. And Daniel's clearly out of place around these people. And, you know, at one of these... In one of these scenes in this chapter, who walks in but like the Earl of Upnor? And again, we get a long description of his clothing. And this one really does go on for a whole page. His clothes as presented is, is insanely over the top. Now, the Earl of Upnor is the, the son of Louis Anglesey. So he's going to be more, he's going to be kind of a villain of the story. He's presented as villainous here because accidentally some like shit gets on his boot and he almost kills a guy over this who accidentally was like doing something. It wasn't even his fault. Um, 
very this idea this old aristocratic ideal that the, that they're the ruling class and everyone else is like a different social status and you know less than human even and their lives don't matter the younger anglesey the earl of updor is this kind of guy and we met him earlier if you didn't already think he was a bad guy because we saw him killing someone daniel did it when he was young but this is uh no this is louis anglesey the younger one the to older one is thomas moore thomas anglesey sorry the duke of gunfleet but upnor is the younger one so we have him and we're also introduced to like this Le Fabour, who I think is a real figure. Um, and he was like a French alchemist working in London. He became friends of, of Isaac Newton and all that. So he's a lot is going on in this chapter, but it's really about change from the Commonwealth to the Restoration Era, the consumer revolution, the kind of consumer power of the aristocracy, their involvement in finance, banking, it's all i mean it's there's a lot going on here in terms of like different little scenes but it's all about that it's all about that so some really uh but it's it's fun but this could be a, a section that if you're not reading carefully could could bore you but the more carefully you read it the more interesting a section like this becomes um then we flip to the meeting of the royal society at gresham's college they've moved from epson after the fire and everything to Gresham's College. And we get a an epigraph drawn from Ned Ward's The Virtuosos Club. And it's all about the diversity of society within the Royal Society, the different people there. Um, and then we get minutes of the meeting. So we actually have Stevenson wrote out the minutes of the meeting. It's um, very technical, but it's also really hilarious. Like there's a scene where someone's talking about doing another Vivashik experiment and Waterhouse and I think Hook kind of opt out of that experiment they don't want anything to do with it and we learn about the connections here's where oldenburg is really key to the story actually even though you don't meet him much because he is connecting the royal society with all these other natural philosophers on the continent right so we learn what huygens is doing with his astronomy we learn what Campanini is doing in in paris we learn uh mostly what english people are doing but you know, these connections are running through the whole, all of Europe and the whole intellectual cl climate of Europe. Um, now, we also see cross different class lines here. So like the Duke of Gunfleet, Thomas Anglesey is there, and he produces the skin of a moor tanned, which is pretty gruesome, but he is like a, a soldier, right? Involved in overseas campaigns or whatever. Um, Discoveries of Boyle, discoveries of Hook, etc., are listed here. Very technical, but it's a pretty fascinating little section, little chapter we have here um, about this. And the, this is followed up by basically conversations with Daniel and Wilkins, um, talking about various things. For instance, uh, Leibniz is introduced here as this German savant who's making waves um, across the channel. We have discussions here on, again, on the philosophical language and the importance for universality. Um, standard weights and measures are talked about here, too. They get in a whole discussion of, like, what a standard unit of, of weight could be and how they could use mercury at a certain, like, temperature and pressure and altitude, you know, to, to create universal measures that could be used anywhere. Um, so that's all, that's all good science stuff. 
Now, the big thing, I guess, in the backdrop of all this is is Oldenburg being put in the Tower of London for a while. So, um, you know, much at first. So first, it's just like Daniels, Wilkins, and Peeps. Of course, the Peeps is an interesting bloke. He, of course, wrote this massive kind of history of, of his observations in the court during the Restoration, a major historical document for this period. But he also, you know, he had he was cut for the stone, right? So he had this huge bladder stone. You can go online, I think, and see it. I think it's uh, at least pictures of it. He was cut, you know, because he had this bladder stone that was going to kill him. And Wilkins is the same, has the same kind of problem. He has a bladder stone. Uh, and it's developing. At least he thinks he does. It turns out it's it's more like, kidney stones that blocked his urethra that and, and he died of other things but uh you know again we're there's a little bit about medicine here in this 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 book and it, it's kind of primitive in this we'll see a lot of this in book three when we get to meet louis the 14th close up but eventually they they make their way uh through town and and daniel goes to see oldenburg has been locked up in the tower of london he's basically being like suspected of treason or something, some nonsense like that. You know, he was a kind of diplomat and he corresponded with a lot of foreigners. So they just threw him in jail just to be careful, I guess. And he meets Daniel. And we get the, probably our closest look at Oldenburg in the entire in the entire book. And they talk about Wilkins and the Cryptonomicon and, and things like that. But anyways, it's... Uh, and there's a hinting here. I think plot-wise, the most important thing is this is is kind of Daniel's naivety about politics, and Oldenburg kind of has to explain to him that that the Duke of Gunfleet, um, Thomas Anglesey, is close with the French King, and you know, partially because of crypto Catholicism, but other reasons as well, perhaps. So we get another epigraph here about currency debasement from Hobbes Leviathan. And it's really Daniel meeting with Sterling Waterhouse, um, who's a real estate guy. A real, that's where his money's in. Um, and he's his, his, his brother, Daniel's brother. Mayflower Waterhouse, who's her older sister. Um, and, and then Thomas Ham is, is in this too. So it's about currency, essentially, and, and about money. And it's really interesting that you have these two branches of the water, Waterhouse line. Mayflowers through her husband is in banking, liquid currency, right? And you got the guy in real estate doing real, you know, real estate, very different type of wealth, but both becoming extremely wealthy through it. Um, now, the wild thing is they go into like Thomas Ham's goldsmith shop and they're just taking coins in that they've gotten from whatever deposits or whatever, and they're melting it down into their new coins. Some of them brand new. They're not like old Elizabethan cold coins. They're they're like Charles II coins, but they're being melted down into gold bullion, right? Because that's how they're going to be stored in the vault. Um, and it's just like the 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 fungibility of currency is 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 really key to this. Quote: No one knows where it goes. The money. That's not the point. The point is that it goes. It moves. The movement never stops. It is the blood in the veins of commerce. Right. In fact, a whole volume of this book, of this series, or a whole book within this series, is called Currency, Book Seven, 
the second to last. Book six, Solomon's Gold. Book seven, Currency. So you've got gold currency, and then book eight, the system of the world, which of course makes us think of Isaac Newton and Principia Mathematica, but it also is capitalism, right? That becomes the system of the world. Once the middle class is able to break free of, of the monarchy, right? Declares independence from it. Fire the king. And, and then after that, basically establish a government that allows mass resource extraction, mass extraction of value from, from its empire across the world, right? All right. Um, oh, here we do see Daniel Drink, though, this scene. Yeah, he's with Wilkins. They're talking about various things, politics and stuff. And eventually he does drink. It's only hinted at because you see him wake up hungover. Um, but he's with Isaac Newton later. And Isaac Newton has him hold this book, the big book of alch alchemy, like handwritten medieval text or something. Uh, pre-Gutenberg, right? It's the old book of alchemy and it's signed by the Earl of Upnor to Newton, right? That they're in cahoots. They're like, Upnor is basically sponsoring Newton because they have a joint interest in alchemy, right? And that's going to be kind of where we see Newton go for the rest of this first book is deeper into alchemy and kind of ignoring the work he's known for, right? That's, of course, everyone knows this about Newton. The stuff we know him for, prisms, optics, Principia Mathematica, early calculus, that he did like in an afternoon, right? And he spent 50 years with alchemy. It's just that stuff we don't take as real science anymore, so it gets ignored. And I think Stevenson is, is good on this, that, yeah, there are people who are skeptical about this stuff, but it's not clear that that stuff's wrong. Like back to the snowflakes, hook snowflakes, right? If you say there must be something in the middle of that snowflake, that means each of those arms will be the same. There must be some principle inside the snowflake that will make that true. That's what the alchemists were saying. There's some principle inside things that we can harness and access and to manipulate things. Right? And that principle could be within us too, right? And if we could access it, maybe we can live forever. Or, you know, the stupid thing like turning the lead into gold. It was all about understanding the, the essential character of things. I guess it's kind of Aristotelian, right? Um, and that's that's the, the revolution of science was against the Aristotelian ideal that things had these, these, these well, these particular characters, right? Um, but I guess for the alchemists, there's even a universal truth that could be unlocked. That is more modern, I guess. You know, I'm not the best on this stuff, but I kind of get it on some level. Maybe someone can explain this a little more detail, in a, in a more exactly using this text. But I think I get it mostly what he's trying to do here with universals and particulars and alchemy versus science. They're all trying the same. They're going in the similar directions, even though one would end up being being wrong. So I guess that's it. I guess that gets us to about page 221 of at least my paperback version. I have the, my Quicksilver as paperback. Uh, when I come back in the next episode, I will talk about the rest of Quicksilver. We'll finish up Quicksilver. So I think I'll do three, vol three episodes per book. And that's about right. 
um, I think with the confusion. So volume two of this broke cycle is books four and five and they're intermixed. So they're not separate. So that one is a little, we'll have to do, maybe just do that over six episodes or, or so. They're also longer, unfortunately. But a lot of it's adventure stuff too. So maybe we don't have to dwell too much on the ideas behind it. But anyways, that's it. So what's going to happen in the next episode is it really takes us... This, this when I first read this book, was a hard section for me. Because it, it seemed like a lot of dull stuff happening. Um, but there's some really interesting plots here. Like, it's all set during the Third Anglo-Dutch War, where England and France are allied against the Dutch, and they lose. Large, not necessarily because they didn't have the military power to win the war. Maybe at sea. But they lose because of, of they lose money and, 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 and kind of betrayal at home, right? But it becomes like the fire of London. The loss in the Third Anglo-Dutch War is, is a bit of a douche for, uh, for the London middle class, at least. Because it's going to break them free financially. It's going to take a, a currency catastrophe to do that. But it's, it's, it's about like the emerging independence of, the, of that commercial class. Um, it's also about new, uh, Waterhouse's change into a, into a more independent thinker through his interactions with Leibniz. Um, and eventually his new sponsorship after Wilkins dies, he loses his friend in the world society and he has to quit. So for political reasons, and he becomes a, a follower of Roger Comstock or, uh, um, Roger Comstock becomes his patron. So anyways, that's it. That's, uh, um, so we're two, two, 200 pages or so into this Baroque cycle. I'm having a lot of fun. I think there's so much cool ideas in this book. Um, but let me know what you think, uh, what you thought of this text. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, and I'll see you next time. Thanks. And they all admire, all they all admire, much less the muchless man, the muchless, muchless man.